You're listening to Tap Into The Truth. Broadcast of Tap into the Truth. Hope you're having a fantastic day wherever you are and whatever you may be doing, with all the usual caveats, of course. With you, as always, I am your ever so humble and mostly peaceful host, Tim Tap, coming to you from historic Roan County, Tennessee. And I am still feeling under the weather. I'm sure you can probably tell by the subdued tones of my vocal cords that I am not faring well against this uh, cold that I have managed to catch. I have been tested, though, and nothing COVID-related for those of you on the slightly left-leaning side of uh, the political spectrum who've been waiting for your chance to say, ha-ha, I told you so. Not yet, my lefty friends, not yet. 
In the meanwhile, uh, it's time to kind of just jump right into things because today I have two uh, very special conversations to share with you. One, of course, is with the former Deep Throat attorney and the host of the podcast Mysteries of Watergate and uh, author of the long-standing popular best-selling book Postgate. Uh, that, of course, is Mr. Well, attorney uh, John O'Connor. John O'Connor is, of course, uh, a returning guest. And in today's second hour, I have a very special privilege to uh, have a uh, short, as it was, conversation with former. Sorry, hold on just a moment. All right, I apologize about that. I had a strange feedback loop in my headset. Okay, so that squared away. I'm not real sure what it was, but anyway, I'll consider. Uh, I had a special conversation with uh, former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under Donald Trump, a former presidential candidate seeking the Republican nomination in 2016, and uh, probably best known to the majority of people, however, as a world-renowned juvenile neurosurgeon. Yes, that's right. I got to speak with Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, he has a new book coming out, and we discussed that and some of the topics around it. So uh, I say it was short. We still talked for a little more than 22 minutes, but I say it was short because there was so much I would have liked to have uh, gotten uh, involved with. His schedule just didn't uh, provide the timing. In fact, it was... Uh, hard getting the 22 minutes, quite honestly. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's a busy guy, and hopefully at some point we can get back together again. That would be fantastic. I think the door was left open uh, pretty well in that regard. Uh, would love to get his take on a lot more things and uh, to actually have more of a, a long-form conversation than what we had to have because there were a lot of questions, and my, my question uh, order that I had laid out as I had prepared for my discussion with him kind of got thrown out of the order that I had hoped to discuss with him uh, due to timing and the importance of the questions and some of the partial answers I already received. All right, at any rate, let's jump right into things because uh, I'm having to uh, really focus on stuff if I'm going to get everything worked in today. So let me be a little more disciplined than usual. Uh, for the benefit of those of you that are listening to the rebroadcast, today is, of course, May the 8th, 2022. It is Mother's Day, so happy Mother's Day to everybody out there listening and happy belated Mother's Day if you are listening to the rebroadcast or if you're a few days late to the podcast. With it being Mother's Day, it's nearly ironic that the biggest ongoing news story remains the leak of the Supreme Court uh, draft ruling upcoming on the Roe v. Wade uh, nullification is essentially what it would become if it stands. And I believe right now everybody's chosen the side to the point that the justices – uh, if they had been open to being swayed before, especially if you look at uh, somebody like a Brett Kavanaugh, who may have been open to to shifting his feelings involved on the case, well, I think they're having to dig in now because of the refusal to be seen uh, to be weak-spined enough to be bullied. And in fact, uh, Clarence Thomas... Court Justice uh, said as much, said that they will not be bullied. It doesn't matter. Uh, so it's rather ironic, though, that the right to murder pre-born children in the womb is such 
a hot-button issue on Mother's Day. So much so that uh, Miss Nancy Mimi Pelosi managed to get herself in the headlines today uh, with something that she said yesterday. And then going on and being on some of the Sunday shows today because this is just such an important thing. And they do plan on trying to push through before what would ordinarily be the normal release of the uh, of the rulings, of the opinions of the uh, Supreme Court, trying to push through a new law that would basically codify Roe v. Wade. Although I don't think such a law would stand based on how the Alito – uh, memo was written, and essentially, for all intents and purposes, this draft is still a memo, if you will. I mean, it, technically, it's a bit more than that, but for all intents and purposes, at this stage of the game, that's really what it is. Here's the argument, here's the reasoning, here's the rationale, and maybe some of you lefties will read this and change your mind. Because this isn't to do with abortion, this is to do with the fact that the Constitution doesn't protect it, that there is no mention in the Constitution of the right to murder the pre-born. There is no mention. Therefore, in accordance with the Constitution proper and the Bill of Rights, this power should fall back to the states. It's a state's rights issue. It always has been. That's why you hear such panicked tones about other non-related issues. Oh, they can roll back this. They can roll back that. Well, they can roll back the fact that the federal government has any authority over it because they should have from the beginning. The initial ruling should have been, eh. But anyway, Nancy got out here, and uh, she, of course, slammed anybody who doesn't support the murder of the preborn during an interview on Sunday, saying that the viewpoint was disrespectful to women. Uh, uh, Nancy, does that also include all the uh, babies that will be murdered that would have grown up to become women? Uh, are, are you including that among the disrespectful to women uh, ideology there? Now, Pelosi's remarks on Mother's Day were made on CBS News Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan. The comments came after the early draft of the United States Supreme Court majority opinion was leaked last week that indicated the controversial Roe v. Wade decision would likely be struck down. The draft, as I've already mentioned, was written by Justice Samuel Alito, and it stated that Roe was egregiously wrong from the start, which is completely accurate and true. It said that we hold that Roe and Casey must be overruled. Now this, quoting now, uh, back to Pelosi, this is a constant fight that we've had for generations, decades, I should say in my case, in the Congress. And the we, we had been bipartisan early on, support for a woman's right to choose until the politics have changed. And that's what happened with the court. The science hasn't changed, but the court changed. Now, I'm going to have to stop right there and say uh, Nancy's lying again. Now, the notion, the idea that there was bipartisan support for Roe v. Wade, that's not necessarily inaccurate. However, if you are defining bipartisan as meaning members of the Republican Party and members of the Democratic Party both agreed, then yes, technically that is true. But just because somebody is, I don't know, let's say – a Republican 
doesn't mean that they're conservative. It doesn't mean that they hold the sanctity of life with any true measure. It doesn't mean that they understand that the whole purpose of the federal government to begin with was the creation to protect the rights of individuals, and that includes the right to life, and that includes the individual that may not have quite been born just yet. Now, these are difficult concepts for politicians to wrap their mind around when they're not accustomed to not getting their way. In truth, they fully understand. They fully comprehend. They know exactly what is and should be doing. Now, my issue is, first and foremost, she just said this is something they've been fighting. Yet we keep hearing that it's been settled law. Now, stare decisis, which is a term that you probably, unless you're a legal student or a law professional of some sort, you probably haven't heard mentioned very often until now. And you've heard it quite a bit recently. All it actually means is that there is a set precedent. Now, in order to have a set precedent, it just means that a court has previously ruled on a topic. But if stare decisis was a definitive end of the discussion, law is settled scenario, there would be no need for an appeals court. There would be no need for any type of uh, one court uh, slated a layer higher than a previous court. Story decisis, if it was definitive, you wouldn't have to have but one court in the land. Period. There would be no entry-level federal courts, no appeals, and certainly no Supreme Court. It wouldn't be required. you just have the one court, period. Hopefully it would be the Supreme Court because there they would just make a decision and say, okay, that's it. From now on moving forward, that's the way it is. But that's not how it is. Story decisis just means already decided. And for things of merit and value, you must reevaluate what has been decided in the past. These decisions that have been made in the past don't always match up with what's understood to be correct. And she says the science hasn't changed. Oh, but that's where I most strongly disagree with uh, Miss Mimi Pelosi. Because, you see, the science has changed. The science in uh, prenatal care has advanced so much so that we now understand that the heartbeat occurs much earlier than we believed. See, once upon a time, we had to rely on such arcane concepts as the quickening, which is when you first felt the baby move inside the uterus. The baby is well developed by that point in time. The baby has been feeling pain. The baby has been recognizing the voice of its mother and potentially recognizing the voice of siblings and the father, depending on how much interaction has been there. Cognitive ability is there. The ability to feel pain is there. And we know this happens much, much earlier than we previously acknowledged. And with the advances in prenatal care, the idea of viability has changed as far as how far into the pregnancy you must go before that child could survive on its own. And in this case, the idea of survival being limited to can you breathe, uh, will your heart continue to beat, and can you take food from another source. That is what they're looking at for viability there. But we know for a fact with the advancements in the science that that viability status comes much, much earlier. In fact... 13 to 14 weeks 
has not become entirely unfathomable. And most of the abortion restrictions that we see being moved forward by various states don't begin until week 15. Several of them even further into the pregnancy, giving the would-be mother more than enough time to make these kinds of decisions that presumably are very hard, are very troubling, are very battering. That's what we keep hearing. That's There's no reason not to believe it in most cases either, but we still see the left doing everything in their power to try and turn this into a rite of passage, to make it a matter of convenience, just another form of contraceptive. It's not appropriate. That's where we're at. Nancy Pelosi says it's disrespectful to women to say that maybe this separate body with a separate genome, that they had plenty of opportunities and plenty of capabilities to avoid fostering in the first place, that that somehow still doesn't equate to life. This, a woman who claims to be a practicing Catholic that claims to be a Catholic in good standing, that claims, despite the fact that there are multiple uh, Catholic churches across the country that will not allow her to receive communion if she steps inside their doors, the fact that she seems to agree that murder of these preborn children all the way up to and in some cases including after their birth not only is acceptable but is somehow constitutionally protected, oh, no wonder they don't like this idea. Their sacrifices to Moloch have been intervened once again by the Supreme Court. And nowhere in this decision from Alito does it say they want to take the right to choose away from women. Nowhere does it say they want to take the right of the people to have their say on the measure. Nowhere does it say that. It simply says the federal government has no say in this matter. This goes back to all you lefties that keep whining about democracy, 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 because guess what? In the diplomatic, diplomatic, democratic processes that exist currently in this country, your vote has more power at the state level than it does at the federal. This allows you to have a stronger voice in your state to determine whether or not your state is going to continue the practice of honoring Moloch and sacrificing countless unborn children. Or if your state is going to take a stand and recognize the sanctity of life, recognize the potential of the unborn, recognize the fact that there is such a thing as right and wrong, and that an overwhelming majority of philosophical thought and religious thought has formed an agreement on this particular topic. Humanity as a whole has for the most part decreed that life should be deemed sacred. And that there are few, few occasions where it is in fact appropriate to take a life. Of course, the left wants to continue to argue that it's not life yet. Well, as somebody who's been trained in biology, I'm going to respectfully disagree with that idea. And that's what it is. And I'm sorry, Nancy. Uh, The science has changed, and there's no such thing as settled law, Uh, just like there's not really any such thing as settled science. Uh, To 
believe that science has been settled is, for all intents and purposes, to ignore what science actually means. Now, I would be perfectly content, however, if Nancy Pelosi was the only one out there making uh, a – well, I was going to use a word I shouldn't, but let's just say making a uh, nuisance of herself on national television on this topic. But as we know, the left don't leave things alone, and the left is far more violent than the right ever dreamed of being. Uh, they don't like that acknowledgement. They keep trying to paint a very different picture. They keep using insurrectionist language while saying when we use a term like, well, we're going to fight this in the courts, they're saying, well, you're going to fight this? Oh, that's insurrectionist language. What are you doing, Elizabeth Warren? We're not going to take this. We're going to go to the streets and fight, blah, 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 blah. All I hear is woo, woo, woo. Because she's a fake Indian, and that's what fake Indians do. No disrespect intended towards actual members of Native American tribes. Now, if it was just that, I would be fine with it, but angry abortion activists marched through suburban neighborhoods on Saturday into residential areas, up to the homes of the doxed addresses of Supreme Court justices specifically John Roberts and Brent Kavanaugh, both of whom are seemed by the left to be uh, the most likely squishy targets, the most likely to have their minds changed, trying to bully these two. And between 50 to 100 protesters gathered outside Justice Kavanaugh's uh, home in Chevy Chase, Maryland. Police uh, said to news outlets on Saturday and uh, it was observed that the uh, lights were on and the house was brightly lit. It was unclear whether Ka the Kavanaugh family was actually at home or not, but uh, it's entirely possible these uh, lights could have been on as a security uh, measure. I, for one, have already mentioned the fact that I hope all the Supreme Court justices, even the left-leaning judges, even the Elena Kagans and the Sonia Sotomayors, are away from their homes and under the watchful eye of very, very good private security, because even the justices on the left are in danger because of this leak. It is not that difficult to perceive a concept where somebody who's really far off their rocker, regardless of what political viewpoint they have, might think that, okay, uh, let's take out uh, this one particular justice because that'll sway the voting even more. They can't uh, get a replacement uh, there in time for the vote. Or to think, well, let's, let's target this one because they're going to be easier to get to because everybody's going to be guarding the others. So we'll get them, and that will grow sympathy uh, towards our cause. Look, uh, we'll we'll pretend like we were a right winger, and we took out uh, one of the left leaning judges, and and then they'll just believe that that we should just side with the left because of divides. You know why it's not so hard to imagine that scenario? Because we've seen that scenario play out before, haven't we? Now, police said that they were anticipating more protests throughout the weeks, especially since. The pro-abortion groups nationally have called for large-scale backlash to the news that Roe v. Wade may soon be overturned. The group known as Ruth sent us, uh, still referencing uh, <laughs> Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who I guarantee you would not want these people doing this, 
because say what you want to about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, I will tell you that I think she was a terrible jurist. Her idea of jurisprudence was horrible because she was an activist from the road. But you at the very least can still recognize that she was committed to her principles, as misguided as they may have been. She stood on them, and she did not disrespect her fellow members of the court, no matter how strongly she might have disagreed with them. She didn't think very highly of the Constitution. She made that clear through several statements that she had made. But she did believe in the institution that was the Supreme Court, which I suppose is a good thing if you're going to serve on it. But she was not the kind of person that would call for this kind of action. So Ruth Sennis really needs to get their priorities in a row. They are, of course, one of the groups that organize these protests, and they've urged protesters to, quote, stand at or in a local Catholic church. The idea here is they want to send a message to all Catholics that they need to keep their religious views out of this. Quoting here, I don't think there is a way to change Justice Kavanaugh's mind. What I think there is is a way to convince other people that there is a fight worth fighting for. Uh, this from a unidentified young man wearing a 1973 to infinity shirt underneath a rain poncho. Uh, quoting here again, and when you look at the 1960s and you look at other protest moments throughout this country and throughout the history of protest movements, people need to see that energy and they need to feel that energy so they get up and do something. When enough people disobey, the law is changed. So that's the point here. That's the idea. They're trying to affect change through mob rule, mob mentality, and bullying. And they don't even recognize it. There's a difference between legitimate protest and illegitimate protest. They're crossing the line when they go to these people's houses. They're crossing the line when they interfere with these people in their private lives. But that's been greenlit as long as you're on the left. Now, you let a right-wing protest group try this with some, uh, let's just say, Nancy Pelosi, for example. Well, then heads are going to roll and, and bad things are going to happen to those people, period. They will become political prisoners like many of the folks still currently being held in conjunction with the January 6th riots. I never, when I was a young person, I never once believed that I was living in a country that would legitimately be holding American citizens as political prisoners. But we are at that point. We're living at a point in this country where we literally have the federal government forming a ministry of truth in the form of their disinformation guidance board. A board that's being headed up by somebody who's proven that she is incapable of neutrality, impartial behavior, non-bias. She's proven it over and over again. And there's a reason why this board is being created out of homeland security, boys and girls. 
They're setting the framework for coming for all of us that would have the nerve to stand up and say, not in my America, not in the America where the Constitution still counts, not in the America where freedom and liberty are still important and falls in the hands of the individual citizens, not just who our government says it should. It's difficult to imagine, difficult to believe that that's where we're at, but that is where we are at. And still... Very few voices from the left have come out to condemn this leak. Not unexpected, but still disappointing. Let's take that mid-hour break, and uh, when we come back, you'll get to hear my conversation with John O'Connor. Don't go anywhere. I will be right back. My name's Joe Biden. All men and women created by the go. You know the you know the thing. Go, <laughs> Brandon. I agree. Yeah. I mean, he has made clear that. Uh, 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 well, I took uh, a walk around the world to ease my troubled mind. I'm thanking you. No, no. I promise you. The president has a big stick. I keep forgetting I'm president. On March 20th, 1854, anti-slavery and pro-liberty activists left the Whig Party and established the new anti-slavery Republican Party. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee. The first major goal of the newly formed Republican Party was to stop the Democrat Party agenda to expand human slavery to all states. In 1854, Democrats passed the Kansas-Nebraska Act. That evil political act led to the creation of the newly formed Republican Party that opposed human slavery. Republicans gained huge support in the North, and two years later, in 1856, presidential election winning 11 of 16 northern states. Today, Democrats are once again on a full-court press to enslave all Americans this time as they seek to destroy the economy in order to try and make all of us go along to get along dependent dolts. The Democrats are also ushering in millions of illegal border crossers in order to try and secure their victory at the voting polls. In recent years, establishment Republicans have been more cooperative with dastardly Democrats than authentic conservatives. In time, we will see if Republicans will once again stand for liberty or continue to be the political great pretender. Oh, yes, I'm the great pretender. I'm Ron Edwards. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for staying with me through that very brief break. It is my honor and privilege to once again welcome back to the show the author of Postgate, How the Washington Post Betrayed Deep Throat, Covered Up Watergate, and Began Today's Partisan advocacy journalism he is the host of the mysteries of watergate podcast which is a very good podcast by the way i highly recommend you uh, check it out ladies and gentlemen please welcome a man who has years of experience as a trial lawyer and of course he was the attorney for deep throat ladies and gentlemen welcome back once again mr john o'connor uh john before we jump into the primary topic tonight uh it's been too long since you've been on with me my friend how are you doing today 
Well, just great. Other than the fact that the world's falling apart, I think everything's great with me. <laughs> well, you know, we got to take the small victories where we can find them. Uh, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Exactly. Uh, so uh, how are things going over at The Mysteries of Watergate? Well, they're going real well. I mean, people love the podcast, uh, and I've got a book coming out. I haven't told anybody yet, but I have a book coming out hopefully in the, the next month. Um that is sort of a refined version of the podcast and where I go into some of these same things called the book's called the mysteries of Watergate. So it'll be a heck of a book. I'm going to bring it out in paperback and it'll be a real nice, uh, real nice little book. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to it then. Uh, I know I've been enjoying the podcast you're up to what about 34 episodes now, I think it is. Sure. Uh, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, each one, uh, just a wealth of information. If you have any interest at all in Watergate, this is the place to go. Uh, not just the inside of what happened, but also the true interthinking of an attorney that witnessed what went on. i, I got to tell you, I really do like it. Um, now, with that to the side, we have witnessed an astounding, unprecedented thing. And for a change, I'm not talking about the pandemic when I say unprecedented. I'm talking about the leak of a draft decision for the United States Supreme Court. There is so much to unpack with this, so much going on in the world of the political, and I have my ideas and theories, but I want to give you a chance to discuss your thoughts before uh, we go back and forth with that. So let's start at the beginning. What was your initial reaction to hearing the news once they confirmed that this leaked draft was authentic? Well, first of all, it didn't surprise me. The actual opinion didn't surprise me because of the way the arguments were going. Each side got more and more entrenched in an extreme position so that pretty soon the case that started out looking like it was trying to chip around the edges of Roe v. Wade, each side said, no, you got to up it or down it. you got to up Roe or you got to down it. Uh, and so uh, the actually the pro-abortion forces in the case urged that uh, upon the court. You either get rid of Roe all, the, all together or you affirm it altogether. And that was what the pro-choice people were saying. Uh, so pro-abortion people. So it wasn't a surprise to me that, that that it was a complete overruling. That was the rumor that was out, that it would either be up or down. And, and I also was not surprised that the majority went the way it went. Um, it is surprising, of course, that the opinion was leaked. That's really unprecedented, and especially just the draft itself, not just the the potential result. Sometimes you'll get those leaks, but this was the draft itself, which is just an uncommon and really unprecedented uh, event where the inner workings of the court are, you know, on full view. And this is this is a draft. Now, the reason the fellow or uh, woman did this was obvious um, trying to stir up a hornet's nest so that at least one of the justices would reverse their vote or change it or modify it and come up with sort of a mushy um, concurring in part type of decision uh, I, I think now the leaking of the opinion probably will have the perverse effect of having everybody dig in 
and keep their same positions. But who knows? Maybe somebody could change their vote. Uh, I will say this. I think the leaker will not be uh, go down in infamy, whoever they, they find when they find the leaker, and I think they will locate the leaker. I think the leaker, rather than having his or her career ruined, I think that leaker will be deified and uh, will be made into a hero, you know, speaking truth to power and so forth and so on. So I'm not uh, as um, quick to jump to the fact that this person's career is ruined. I think just the opposite. They'll go down as Daniel Ellsberg went down as this heroic guy. So it's an odd situation. Yeah, I mean, we are talking about somebody who is literally endangered. <clears throat> Excuse me, I'm sorry. I've been fighting a cold, uh, so please forgive me. Uh, it's literally endangered the lives of these justices. We've seen their home addresses doxed by these groups. And uh, we just see this total level of insanity from political uh, activists and from uh, Democrats that are currently holding office trying to codify uh, Roe as law and, and all this other, which actually would be a pretty good first step if you wanted it to mean anything because it was never technically a law. It was a uh, a poor rationed opinion that was ruled from the court uh, essentially cobbling together some vague notions uh, and from the Constitution saying, okay, I'm going to make this mean this because we want it to happen. Uh, what was your thought on uh, the reasoning and how the draft was laid out before we dig into some of these other things? Well, well, you know, really, I think when I read it, you know, you read, you look at the decision like this, and I've got maybe three hats on. I've got a lawyer's hat on. I've got the hat of a moralist, is this in keeping with my moral values? And I've got a political hat on. So when I heard about the overruling, I was really a little bit shaken because I think politically there's a lot of other fish to fry if you're conservative. And I think this will actually have the effect of energizing the Democrats in the coming election. Um, uh, my moral hat, I was kind of, I would have been all right if they simply affirmed the law uh, because I'm not against abortion in the first trimester. Uh, that first part of Roe v. Wade, I thought they might do something like that. But so I didn't, don't have any problem with the affirmation of the law. Uh, but now you get to the legal spot, and I said, well, gee, how are they going to do this? This is the law of the land, it's precedent. How are they going to get around this? But you read the decision. And it's so crystal clear and so well-written, so well-reasoned, that you realize exactly why should we uphold the law that was never good to begin with. It wasn't based on any principles at all, and it made no sense. And when Alito takes it apart point by point by point, uh, you really it's very hard, just from a strictly legal point of view, to argue with it. you have to remember that there were people on the very much on the liberal side of the fence that disagreed with the way that Roe v. Wade was written. I think Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of them. The problem isn't that I think everybody recognizes the the case was originally terrible, terrible jurisprudence. The problem is, you know, now there's sort of this expectation that Roe is is everybody's god, and uh, you know you can use it as a cudgel. 
in really in red states is really where it's used. It makes the decision makes no difference in New York, California, Illinois, places like that. It it's going to make a difference in Mississippi or some other place um, uh, where there might be a, a tendency to restrict abortion. Uh, my home state of Indiana will probably restrict it some. Uh, so, but reading it as a on the basis of how do we get rid of how do we overturn a precedent? Once you read this decision, you say, "Yeah, they're right. They can overturn it. It was a terrible precedent. Let, let's think of one that was even that was probably a better precedent. Still should have been overturned. But the the notion of Plessy v. Ferguson in 1896 that you can have separate but equal railroad cars for blacks and whites." That was part of our constitutional law, separate but equal. I mean, was it? Do we have to because it's in law for 58 years? Then do we have to follow it, or do we do the right thing and issue Brown versus Board of Education? There's no such thing as separate but equal, uh, because by definition, separate means unequal. Um, and so, um, if you can overturn that, I suppose you can overturn Roe v. Wade. They're both were very bad decisions to begin with. If anything. You, at least there's some logic. I don't like the logic. I, I, I would defeat it if I were a judge, but at least there's some logic behind Plessy v. Ferguson, the notion that, well, maybe if you are equal, then it's okay to be separate. But um, but I, 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 I think that they so much eviscerate the grounds for Roe v. Wade that it's, it's very hard logically not to agree with it. Like I say, I wish they'd do it after the midterms, but that's not the case. Yeah. Um, when it comes down to it, though, we have seen the federal government acquire so much authority that is, well, I'll be diplomatic and call it extra constitutional. And the Supreme Court has played a role in making that happen. Uh, is this kind of a victory in returning a little more power to states' rights and a, a return more to the republic as she was founded? Uh, because we hear from the left, of course, uh, the wailing, the gnashing of teeth. You would think this would uh, immediately 100% ban all abortion all across the country uh, if this is allowed to go forth, which obviously isn't anywhere near uh, the fact of what's going to occur. But uh, is this a case where those particular uh, politicians are really whining because they're afraid that more of the power they've grabbed up may be about to go back into the hands of the states where hopefully the people that are out here protesting will start to figure out they have more power in their vote, more power to affect the change within their more local communities at the county and state level than they do at the federal level anyway? Well, that's a good point. This is a very democratic decision. In other words, it puts all these decisions back to the ballot box. So that's the first thing you said that's absolutely right on. It will um, it will enliven the local public debate because there's an awful lot of people that are going to be talking about this. I mean, uh, you'll have a conservative state, and the question might be, do we have no abortion at all, or do we have abortion at 18 weeks? Um so it will enliven the discussion, and probably we're the better for it, like uh, such as that. Now, you talk about the power. Besides the legislature, we have another thing going on in our country. We have a tremendous amount of power in nonprofits or really uh, issue advocacy groups, 
and they're very powerful. They're they they are a life unto themselves, and you will get and they're all one issue groups. So all this these uh, uh, women's health organizations, abortion, uh, uh, Planned Parenthood, there are an awful lot of them that are just one note uh, folks, and they love to control things. They have their one issue. You have your salary. Uh, paid in this nice cushy job you hang around at great conferences and you know so forth and so on have a lot of free lunches and you're talking passionately about an issue you care about or you wouldn't have joined the group so that's what we've spawned we've spawned a lot of organizations in this country not just in abortion but in other things in which there's no discussion there's no gray area because the whole idea of a pro-abortion group is not to um, not to find a middle way uh, where everybody's happy, not to have some common sense restrictions on abortions, but they're just one note, like the environmental groups. They're one note. They're, they're not there to balance the interest of business and the environment. They're there just to, to just stop any growth, growth whatsoever. So I think it's a real victory. We've got to get away from these entrenched interests. Everybody talks about special interests. Oh, we don't like special interests, but Normally, when the people say they don't like special interests, they're talking about business people. Uh, and actually, <laughs> there, there's not as much special interest in the business groups as there are in the uh, in the uh, issue world, the issue advocacy world. Um, so usually, if there's a group of people that make concrete, for example, they're, you know... <laughs> Their influence is very muted and so forth and so on, and they're really there. They educate the legislature. They have no real political clout, these groups, uh, these commercial groups. But these issue groups, boy, they're, they mobilize voters. They mobilize voters. And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see in the coming midterms, we're going to see 36, 20, uh, 26 to 35-year-old women, single women, you're going to find uh, suburban women, married women, will join together in a very, very strong political force, at least in blue and purple states. And so in those states, um, ironically enough, where abortion is, isn't really endangered. That's the ironic thing about it. The people that are really upset are the people that are in states where you're not going to have any incursion into abortion rights. But yet that's where the action's going to be. And I I think it will have an impact on the elections. That's there's a few points in the um, meter there going swinging back to the to the blue side of things. So I think this is actually I hate to say this, but I think it's going to hurt the conservative wave that's coming along. Yeah. Well, I definitely see this being a factor in the purple states because those are the ones that clearly can swing either way. But in the red states, I don't think it's going to change anything. In the blue states, I don't think it's going to change anything. So the question is going to be for in those purple states, which is going to hurt more? This idea that if we don't get the messaging out there properly, that uh, a, a, what they believe to be a constitutionally protected right because of the last 50 years has been uh, taken away or is the economy still going to be an overwhelming factor for most of these people? Uh, I, I have a hard time believing the economy doesn't win that battle, given how bad things are now. And I don't see any signs of things uh, changing out. But there's no question it 
will be a factor in those purple states. And there are uh, places like maybe a Wisconsin, maybe a Minnesota, where maybe this red tsunami that it looked like we were about to to have was probably going to to just wash out anybody that was on the ballot. Uh, maybe some folks uh, pull out some W's that they wouldn't have anymore, and maybe we don't. Uh, make those strides we were hoping to in the Senate and uh, even possibly in the House. So I don't think you're wrong. I'm just kind of, I don't, maybe I'm just whistling past the uh, graveyard here and hoping uh, people have more uh, concern about their dollars and cents. But uh, two quick questions. Uh, sure. When it comes to the constitutionality and after having uh, read uh, Alito's thinks, thinking on the matter. It appears that they're ready, at least the conservative, more conservative justices are ready to allow state issues to go back to the states. So if. Well, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that's fair. Okay. If the Democrats have their way, uh, Chuck Schumer's out here already swearing he's going to bring a vote to the floor. Now, right now, it doesn't look like it's likely to pass the Senate anyway, because you've got a couple of folks that typically vote with Democrats. Uh, actually, uh, you got Joe Manchin in particular, who is a Democrat, but uh, he's in Wisconsin. Uh, Wisconsin. He's in West Virginia. I'm sorry. And uh, he's got a constituency that is more involved with the pro-life side of things and he's already said he's not going to do away with the filibuster on this issue and that he's not likely to vote for a law that would codify it uh, nationally so if through some miracle though uh, Pelosi and Schumer were to push a law through and of course Joe Biden would sign it because uh, he's made his stance uh, pretty clear on this uh, how long do you think it would take for again a state like Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee to bring this back to the federal court it get back to the supreme court and uh do you think it would just be overturned if the initial reaction here is that the federal government doesn't have this authority i think you're right i think it'll go right back to the same court and the that same court is going to say no this is a state's issue where, where do we get off federalizing this issue uh you know what where is the impact in interstate commerce you know it's not like we're selling babies across state lines so um, I, I think it would not have a good chance of making it. So it's it's really kind of a bootless gesture. Um, what I do think, though, is apropos of your comment about the purple states and so forth, I think there are even in blue states, there are purple congressional districts where Republicans are hoping to flip. And I think that, you know, you can be affected in those purple areas of these, even in blue states. So I think, or, or or in purple areas in red states. Some red states have purple areas. So I think the effect of this is going to be much more subtle than anybody uh, uh, thinks, and it's going to have a uh, it's going to have an impact. There's no doubt about it. There's going to be some races that the Republicans are going to lose because of this, especially at the congressional level. Um, your, your, your analysis is probably spot on on the Senate side of things, you know, like in terms of statewide, you get a red state, it's going to be a red state. You get a blue state, it's going to be a blue state. It's only going to be in the purple states for the for the statewide races like Senate that this, and governor. It's going to be a big deal statewide. It's the local races I'm worried about because you're going to have, you know, you got 400 and some uh, con con congressional district, and uh, a lot of them are going to be affected. Yeah, well, you're you're right, absolutely right, and uh, you know that is something that 
I, I think we do need to be cognitive of. But like I said, I'm just really hopeful that people are at this point paying more attention to the the bad energy policies, the bad economic policies, and all these other things that are hurting a majority of Americans, whereas the actual return to states, the authority to determine how they regulate uh, the idea of abortion, uh, it affects individuals, much fewer people, in a much less dramatic way than the Democratic Party at this point would have you believe. Uh, so, again, just have to get the right messaging out there. Uh, if we continue to look at what's happening, though, uh, this reaction from the left, it's some somewhat predictable, and you mentioned that when they do out whoever is the leaker, uh, you're right that we, we see in the media already uh, there is no one uh, in a mainstream legacy media outlet that typically tends to lean leftwards that has come out and condemned this leak, despite the threat that it poses. There's only one Democratic office holder uh, at the national level that I'm aware of that has came out and condemned the leak. Uh, this seems to have been almost encouraged uh, as far as the behavior is concerned. Do you have any concern that this now will become the norm when it's so disruptive to the uh, the, the normal uh, d discussion, the normal uh, ruminations, the efforts that the justices make in writing their opinions and trying to sway some of the folks that maybe are on the fence. And if this does become normal and become so disruptive, uh, at what point do we need to just completely change how the court operates and instead of giving yourselves this extra time to, to let these uh, arguments kind of germinate in your mind uh, to come to a, a faster decision to avoid any potential threats. Because to me, I think rushed jurisprudence, especially on very nuanced cases, can lead to more wrong decisions uh, rather than uh, what we're supposed to be getting now which is based on your view of the uh, understanding of the Constitution and the difference between right or wrong from a judicial standpoint? Well, you know, if what you're saying is, will this, will this change things in that regard? Um, uh, I, I, you know, I think when you talk about the leaker, I think the danger is that we are, if if the leaker is caught and he is deified, he or she is deified, as I think they might be, what we're going to see is far more leaks. Everybody's going to say, you mean I can write a bestseller and be a star if all I have to do is leak something? And I think that's going to be one of the perverse results of this is that we're going to now have a nation of leakers. Um, that was always a serious offense. Now nobody thinks at all about it. Uh, people are leaking all the time. Um, and so I do think it really hurts our judicial system when you find, when you see this. That's, that's, that's uh, certainly an effect here. Okay. 
All right, uh, John, again, thank you so much for joining me today. I love our conversations. Uh, I hate that we have to, to roil them in and bring them to an end, but uh, otherwise I would just take up the rest of your evening and you wouldn't have time to do anything else. And at that point you might stop coming on the show, and I definitely don't want that. Uh, one more time, uh, please let everybody know where they can uh, find your work. Let them know where the websites are appropriate and uh, – uh, let them know where to find the podcast. And, and if you're on social media and you're inviting folks to follow you, let them know your handles. Just throw out all the information you want the public to have right now. Well, yeah, thanks. Uh, I, I would say go to postgatebook.com, postgatebook.com, and you can read all about the book. And you can also click onto my podcast and look at articles I've read, but, but it, that's pretty good. And you can go to other sites to get the mysteries of Watergate. Other and any place where they do these podcasts, the mysteries of Watergate. It's kind of fun. So I encourage everybody. I'm just really interested in everybody sort of being open to examine all the issues and not do a lockstep uh, sort of media. This is what you need to know, and this is the truth, and and you better not uh, contradict it. So. I think uh, that's my pitch, and so if you go to postgatebook.com, I think the people will see a, a lot there that they like. All right. Again, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, keep up all the great work, and I will be anxiously awaiting to see the release of the new book. So uh, have, a, well, thanks. have a great rest of your weekend, and uh, hopefully we'll get together again soon. It's always great with you. Thanks. Take care. Uh, you as well. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, that was, of course, Mr. John O'Connor. And uh, as always, fantastic guest with a lot of great points. All right, and one of those great points was to, uh, you know, correct the host when he needs to be corrected. And uh, fortunately for me, that's what I like. I like being challenged in a respectful way, having an actual discussion, and that's part of the fun. Uh and uh, it was fun. I always enjoy talking to John, though. Uh, it, it has been uh, an honor to get to know him uh, a little bit over the last few years. Hope you guys enjoy hearing from him as much as I enjoy speaking with him. Now, some of the uh, points that I had hoped to have gotten to, we didn't quite get there. So we will be having more guests in the very near future uh, involving this leak and involving the legal side of it. And we will get into further discussions, of course. But we're literally living in a point in time where the left has lost their minds. And I'm going to start off the next hour with another story involving the continued activities and the fights of the lunacy from the left uh, in their effort to save their sacrifice to Moloch. Uh, also, uh, be watching my social media feeds for links to previous articles that I've written regarding Nancy Pelosi's views and her effort to protect abortion well before this came down the pike. Uh, I had a lot of interesting interaction from folks on the left with a few of them, so love to revive those articles and see uh, if we can't refresh the discussion there. In the meanwhile, that's going to have to be it for this first hour. Uh, so uh, for those of you listening on Terrestrial Radio, I'm saying goodbye for today. Be sure to tune in again tomorrow at the same time because, you know, we've got the same time slot every day all through the week uh, to hear hour number two. In hour number two, I will be uh, airing that conversation that I had with Dr. Ben Carson. So be sure you check back with that. And uh, in the meanwhile, ladies and gentlemen, please 
Don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort, and most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. In the meanwhile, one last message for Mr. Joseph Robinette Biden Jr. This is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, Brandon. Let's go, let's go, state plan taught to praise the little man told that union saved the working class he was raised a red state son to love the flag and own a gun warned about the greed with you're listening to tap into the truth my name's joe biden all of this as more than half of americans think president biden will go down as one of the worst presidents in american history I keep forgetting I'm president.
that they were only really interested in overturning Roe v. Wade because they know how much money could be made selling unwanted babies on the black market. Arquette shared a tweet responding to the recently leaked early opinion draft written by conservative Justice Samuel Alito, uh, indicating that the court might be preparing to overturn both Roe and its companion landmark abortion decision, Planned Parenthood versus Casey. She said in this tweet, quote, No, it's not hysterical or alarmist. They will traffic babies that many women can't afford to keep. There is a huge money-making market worldwide for babies, and behind that is organ trafficking. The majority Supreme Court justices are officially a satanic force. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, those of you fine, fine folks listening today. She literally said that a group of people that believes that anything that's not specifically in the Constitution should be back in the hands of the states and the people is a voice for satanic activity, is working towards trying to help satanic forces in an effort to, I don't know, uh, maybe keep a few more children alive as opposed to committing the fundamental sin of murdering innocent people who... These poor preborn children happen to be. Once again, I think it's a case of having to to have uh, somebody tell these people inconceivable because it is inconceivable, isn't it? Oh, but not to the left. The left has completely went off the rocker on this one. And Arquette, of course, she started her commentary after the draft was leaked uh, back on Monday. By saying, uh, get your boots off our wombs. She said, and I'm quoting, a slimy drunk rapist is taking away women's rights to choose. She uh, apparently was referring to these accusations that was made at Justice Brett Kavanaugh during his rather bitter confirmation battle back in 2018. Arquette followed that up with a call for President Joe Biden to pack the court. President Biden must add non-compromise judges to the Supreme Court. Really? How do you define non-compromise? Just justices that agree with you and are willing to ignore the Constitution? Because if that's non-compromise, I'm going to tell you once again, we're going to have to scream really loud in your ear. Inconceivable! Because the follow-up for Inconceivable, uh, if you are a fan of The Princess Bride, is, of course, you keep using this word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Uh, Non-compromise, please. Arquette, of course, was not alone in for calling for Biden to add justices to the court. In addition to calls from a number of Democrats for Congress to codify Roe, with legislation that would uh, make abortion a federally protected right, one that, as I pointed out in my conversation with John O'Connor, probably still doesn't cut the constitutional mustard since this is a state issue, not a federal one. Uh, A number of elected officials and abortion activists joined in to calls for Biden to 
undercut the early opinions by adding justices and doing so as quickly as possible. But guys, I got to tell you, even if you were to suddenly raise the number of justices for the Supreme Court and nominate a whole bunch of folks to fill those extra seats, you're still not likely to get confirmations and be able to put them on the court before this ruling would be done. And you can't make a change now and expect it to go into effect for a session that's already uh, in session. A session that's already in session. It feels a little redundant, but you know what I mean, right? I mean, at the end of the day, should anybody be trying to undercut these decisions anyway? Uh, obviously, the left wants to do away with the Supreme Court altogether. If they can, they're trying to burn down all the institutions of this government, right? Anyway, Senator Elizabeth Warren, a.k.a. Pocahontas, a.k.a. claimed to be a red Cherokee but really is just a white suburban, uh, she said, uh, right-wing extremists have hijacked the Supreme Court of the United States. We must expand the court to rebalance it and defend our basic rights, including the constitutional right to an abortion. Except, uh, Elizabeth, there is no constitutional right to an abortion. Even Ruth Bader Ginsburg said that Roe v. Wade was horrible Judas, Judas, Judas prudence, jurisprudence. That is, I swear English is my first language. I swear it. Just every now and then I get tongue-tied, especially when I'm still trying to fight off this cough that's trying to fight its way through. Anyway, Elizabeth knows it's bad precedent. So does Joe Biden. So does Nancy Pelosi. All these people know, but they were able to bully their way to keep it from being overturned for nearly 50 years. And they want to rely on it having become a norm as opposed to its actual legal uh, position. They want you to believe that since it was okay for nearly 50 years, but it wasn't okay for nearly 50 years because even Nancy Pelosi, on earlier today, today of course being Mother's Day, time of the live broadcast, made mention during her many efforts to defend Roe v. Wade and talk about how radical an idea it is to overturn this, was talking about how many times that the, the, the decision has been challenged, be making it nowhere near settled law. It's been challenged over and over again, and it's just most of the Supreme Courts that have sat ahead of that have decided not to hear the case because they didn't want to touch that third rail. Quoting here, from author Christopher Moore. In my fantasy, Schumer calls the caucus together in the morning and goes, we're going to kill the filibuster, pack the court, codify abortion rights, and we're going to do it in three months. Any questions? Moore then added, sure, I could have worked in drag it, could have worked to drag it in, but, uh, then it's about a dragon. Okay, so I guess that's his attempt to be clever. Sure, I could have worked a dragon in, but uh, then it's about the dragon. And he doesn't want you to talk about the dragon. He wants you to talk about what he thinks Chuck Schumer should be doing. But here's the problem. What Chuck Schumer should be doing is explaining to his constituents about how 
he's not likely to be able to kill the filibuster. I mean, he could show up and say, this is what we're going to do, but then all it takes is uh, Senator Manchin from West Virginia to say, no, it's not. Because there's not a Republican in there that's going to go along with it, even the ones that may be pro-abortion. Like a certain Senator, certain Senator Collins, for example, or a certain Senator Markowski, both of which have come out and said that they're greatly disappointed and they feel like they were misled by the justices during their confirmation hearings. However, what I would invite anybody who's questioning what was responded to in return to questions about Roe v. Wade and its standing is go back and listen to the actual answers given by the most recent Supreme Court additions. You're more likely to find truthful responses from Kavanaugh and from Amy Coney Barrett and from Samuel Alito himself, far more truthful and honest and legitimate responses as you would expect from someone sitting on the highest court of the land than you would from Katanji Brand-Jackson who simply said that she can't define what a woman is, despite the fact that she wanted to make the case that there were so many young black uh, girls that were so happy that she had been nominated. It's like, well, how do you know they were girls? What does it matter if they were girls if you can't define what a woman is? How are you supposed to make a ruling on something that affects women's rights when you can't define what a woman is? Am I supposed to believe that you don't know how to define a woman? Because I, I don't. I don't believe that you don't know how to do this. So, again, soon to be the next associate justice to the Supreme Court, Judge Jackson, I don't believe you were honest in your answers. But the th problem here is we all knew she wasn't being honest, and it was okay with them anyway. When asked about stare decisis, they responded to stare decisis. When asked about precedent, they responded appropriately to precedent. But they never once said that anything that is precedent is out of bounds at being reviewed, being revisited, being rethought. Not once. And again, I would challenge you, if you don't think I'm telling you the truth about that, Go check it out and listen carefully to the responses. It is not what the folks in the media are telling you that they said. They didn't say, uh, yes, Roe versus Wade is precedent and should stand. They never once said it should stand. What they said is it would be inappropriate for them to indicate in any fashion that they had a agenda to overturn anything that currently stood. Now, not exactly in those words, although that's pretty close in the case of Amy Coney Barrett. But they made it clear. Their intention is not to show up and, and, and have an agenda. Their intention is to go be Supreme Court justices, to hear the cases that come before them, and to hear the merit of that case, and to take precedent into account and respect precedent as they should with the understanding that that is not a free pass to continuing existence. That a decision that has been made in the past, if it was made incorrectly, not only do they have the ability to overturn that decision, 
they have a responsibility to overturn that decision. When a previous court got it wrong, there is the expectation to go get it right. And getting it right is not based on what the majority of the American people believe in that moment. Getting it right is not based on your political ideology. It's not based on the political ideology of the justices that are it's setting, listening to the case. It's based solely on what the Constitution says. And in this effort to overturn Roe v. Wade, the only thing that is made clear is how badly reasoned and rationale, how completely and totally unconstitutional the initial decision that allowed Roe v. Wade to stand in the first place was horrible. Alito makes the extremely compelling legal case in each and every part of the decision in this draft. And he makes it clear that while we have had nearly 50 years of this being considered the law of the land, you know, the law that was never even a law, a decision that was made uh, based out of a court opinion where no legislation ever existed. I mean, if, if, Chucky e. Schumer wants to go around and waste the time, then by all means, go ahead, waste the time. Try to pass a constitutional law. How do you do that? Uh, because a constitutional law involving something the federal government has no constitutional authority on simply doesn't exist. So pass your law trying to codify Roe. Uh, try, try to make this a federally protected right to abortion. Try to make this a federally protected right where not only does it mean that you can murder these children up until several hours after their actual birth if that's what happens. But also requires taxpayers to pay for them in a good number of cases. Let's see how that plays out in the midterms. Now the key here is making sure that the truth of what they're trying to do is messaged properly, that everybody finds out that this isn't about the banning of abortion. This is about the return of states' rights. This is about the return of the states having the authority that they were always intended to have and about you as an individual having a stronger voice in these particular questions because your voice matters more the smaller the community that you're speaking up in. If you've got a group of three people uh, two people agreeing on something gets it done every time, right? So at a municipality level, your vote matters more than at the federal level. At a county level, your vote matters more than at the federal level. In a congressional district level, your vote still, while it's these groups are getting larger and larger, your vote still counts more than it does at the federal level. At a state level... Your vote matters more. Your voice is louder. It is stronger. This is something that if you still believe in democracy, you should want. But you need to also understand that this is how a republic that embraces democratic values is able to function and still be a republic. It's how it's able to function and still protect minority voices because the problem with majority and minorities when you're talking about individual issues is those numbers are constantly shifting. 
But there is still an inherent right and wrong. There is still an inherent what is the authority of the federal government. Where do we limit it? Where do we draw the line? And we have to draw the line at what is not in the Constitution. We have allowed our federal government to gain far too much extra constitutional power by virtue of simply not challenging it on the right basis and by not holding Supreme Court justices accountable when they side with the government over the federal government over the rights of the states and over the rights of the individual people. We have not held them accountable. We have not required them to actually fulfill their constitutional responsibility. The President of the United States does not have the authority to issue executive orders that have the power of law. Some constitutional scholars even disagree as to whether or not Congress has the right to pass a law that allows the executive branch to take control over certain issues that should be legislatively handled. Although it's commonly accepted at this point that if Congress has said, oh, by the way, this is something the executive branch should handle, so in this case we'll let their executive authority stand as law. Now, that's not really how that's supposed to work, boys and girls. And this has been Congress being able to avoid being on the record. Because as it turns out, when you're on the record for things, you can get called out for them. And if you can get called out for them, you can get recalled from an elected position. Or you can get voted out next go-round if it's not so egregious as to demand your removal immediately. Congress doesn't want to fix anything because they need issues to run on. But they don't want to be on the record for having done anything. It's much easier to just say things and then say something differently when the political winds change because there's no record to fall back on. It's a lot harder when you actually have to try to be on the record for something. All these folks on the left have been in a position now where they believe they're winning the fight, and they don't like the fact that for the longest time Republicans were afraid to get into the culture wars. And now that more and more conservatives are not only punching back in the culture war, but are starting to win certain battles in the culture war, they can't stand it. They're terrible losers. You would think by now they should be used to it because when their ideas are expressed in their purest, simplest form, they lose every time. Reasonable American citizens do not support a majority of the things the left wants to push down our throats, including the murder of the preborn uh, all the way up to and immediately after birth. Now, there's an overwhelming majority of American citizens that probably do support the right to an abortion up to the end of the first trimester. Now, I personally don't feel very good about that myself. I think if you don't have some legitimate, strong reasons for needing to terminate that life, then there's no argument. There's no discussion. You should have took more steps to avoid becoming pregnant in the first place. It's way too easy to not get pregnant. It's way too affordable to not get pregnant. If you're not going to live a moral life and, and preserve your extracurricular activities, if you're not going to restrict them, if you're not going to engage in a certain level of uh, impulse control, then you need to take these other precautionary steps to prevent 
becoming pregnant if you're not ready to become a mother. And the same thing goes for the men. You need to take steps if you're not prepared to become a father. And that doesn't mean putting pressure on your girlfriend or your partner or your one-time hookup if you just happen to get them pregnant to try to end that pregnancy. And I don't care if you want to make this about morality or not. For me, there is a strong morality component. But if you have zero biblical-based morality at all, you still need to have a a self-morality. You still should have some level of principle for which you personally live by. Some level of self-preservation should be kicking in. And that self-preservation doesn't mean you take the easy way out every time you run into something hard because you're not doing yourself any favors, let alone uh, doing anyone else any favors. The natural order of things is for women to become pregnant. Now, naturally, I'm saying something that's horrific in the minds of the left. How dare you even just say women can be pregnant? What about the men who can become pregnant? They're not dudes, dude. You can keep playing that word salad game all you want to, but it's by playing these games with the definitions of words and trying to change their meanings that's led to the level of confusion we currently face as a civilization. But at the end of the day, personal responsibility is a requirement if you want to have true liberty. So being responsible means that, okay, you do the things that adults are supposed to do, whether you want to or not. You take responsibility for your actions, whether you want to or not. And if you become a parent, all of your plans get altered. The child has to come first. You're not ready for that level of commitment. You're not ready for it. Then stop engaging in the risky behavior that leads to pregnancy, period. That is that is the simple solution there. But this idea, this notion that somehow you're being punished if you become pregnant and must have the child, that's absurd. It's not about punishment because you still don't have to keep the baby. And that doesn't mean we're going to be trafficking children uh, all around the world. Miss Arquette, jeez. What it does mean is that lots and lots of loving parents who are not able to have children of their own still get to have children. Granted, it's never ideal, but it's better than the alternative. It's better than just murdering the most innocent among us. It's far better than denying the world the opportunity of the potential that these lives bring. For better or for worse, for good, for evil, whatever it may be, until that potential is acted upon, we don't know. Now, we may be deriving the world of the next Hitler, but we may also be denying the world the next Gandhi. We may be denying the world the next Stephen Hawking. We may be denying the world the next. You fill in the blank. Who's your personal hero? Who is an undeniable force for good? All right. 
going to have to leave that right there where it is. Time for the mid-hour break. You guys don't go anywhere. I will be right back after this break. I'm Ron Edwards, host of the Edwards Notebook, and you're listening to Tim Tapp and Tap into the Truth. The United States has been the greatest nation on earth, but unless there are major changes made in the near future, our national greatness will be a distant memory. Hello, I'm Ron Edwards. On today's page from the Edwards Notebook, brought to you by Constitutional Grounds Coffee, our great republic has been seriously compromised and severely weakened by the policies of regime leader Joe Biden. You might recall that when Joe Biden was campaigning, he proudly barked out to an audience of black Americans that they're going to put you back in chains. But when one observes, it is easy to understand that in reality, it is the abysmal Joe Biden who has put our entire republic in chains. The United States is now chained to the mercy of enemy nations for petroleum because Uncle Joe destroyed our energy independence. Many elderly Americans are chained to their homes because the Biden regime and Soros district attorneys throughout the United States have made sure that the full variety of thugs are free to burglarize, rape, and murder law-abiding young and old sovereign citizens without any real chance of doing hard time for their crimes. There are other examples as well, but the bottom line is, if our United States is to be that shining city on a hill, example to the world again, we must reestablish the godly principles that made America the beautiful envy of the world. If not, forget about it. I'm Ron Edwards. Sponsored by the Tri-County Liberty Coalition. Our Constitution is a document in which we the people tell the government what it is allowed to do. We the people are free. Just a song before I go To whom it may concern It's easy to get burned it is indeed easy to get burned if you don't keep your eyes where they need to be. And as Ronald Reagan so aptly put it, uh, the Constitution is, well, it's more than what most people want to make it out. But uh, a government that fears its people is a government that is still understanding its appropriate role. It needs to be responsive to the will of the people, but it also needs to understand the responsibilities that go with the authorities and powers that's been granted. All right, uh, we are back. I'm going to make a slight transition now. We were talking about, uh, in the earlier segment, the insanity from the left. So now it's time to have a conversation with somebody that, you know, is going to bring a little common sense insanity back to the discussion. But before 
I play for you my conversation with Dr. Ben Carson. Wanted to remind you, uh, in the today's show description, you will find links that will take you to My Patriot Supply, that will take you to the Hero Soap Company, that will take you to Built Bar. And I want you to strongly, strongly consider following these links. Uh, please copy the links in their entirety and paste them into your web browser. That way they know I'm the one who sent you. Go visit these folks and see what it is that they can do for you. Look at what they have to offer. I cannot impress upon you enough what the food shortages are going to start looking like soon. My Patriot Supply has still got enough stuff to ship out. Don't wait till that becomes an issue, and don't wait till you can't go to your local grocery store because a mostly peaceful summer is coming. Make no doubt about it, and it's only going to be exacerbated by a lack of food on the shelves, and that, we've already been told, is coming. We're already seeing the signs, so please, My Patriot Supplies can help you there. Uh, it's not going to hurt to have a supply buildup of Built Bar as well. They say they're protein bars, but uh, I still say they're just candy bars. They just taste that good, and uh, my... Uh, my proclivity to encourage you to visit uh, the Hero Soap Company. Uh, they are easily the most America first company that I can find. By all means, visit them and uh, try out their sub description. And keep in mind, for every, uh, for every order over a certain dollar amount, you get free shipping. And uh, if you sign up for a sub description, I love how they call it a sub, as in soap sub, sub description. Uh, they will also send uh, fresh soap to our um, <clears throat> heroes in uniform that are foreign, that are serving in foreign theaters. All right, with that having been said, let's get to it, ladies and gentlemen. This was my recent conversation with Dr. Ben Carson, uh, this right after that break. All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so very much for staying with me through that very brief break. It is now my uh, distinct pleasure and an honor to get to uh, welcome to the show a first-time guest. You may know him as the former director of PT pediatric neurosurgery at John Hopkins. You may remember him as a candidate for the Republican nomination for president in 2016, and you may very well remember him as the former Secretary of Housing and Urban Development under the Donald Trump administration. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome a distinguished author, distinguished physician, and all-around distinguished conservative thought leader, Dr. Ben Carson. Uh, Dr. Carson, first and foremost, thank you so much for joining us this evening, and how are you today? I'm doing well, and thank you so much for having me. All right. Uh, as I said, the, uh, the honor is mine. Glad to have you here. Now, it feels like a waste not to dive into all of the wild and crazy stuff that's going on right now and get your thoughts on just everything that's happening, but... I'm going to be a disciplined host, I'm going to be a good boy, and we're going to discuss the topic of your brand new book, Created Equal, and topics involving race that are around that book, and maybe we'll be able to get together again sometime in the future to discuss some of these other things. Um, Absolutely. With that being said, in your book... The brand new created equal. I'm just going to start right in with that. You talk about the human brain, which is something that I'm pretty sure you know just a little bit about. You talk, <laughs> you talk about how we process information, how the brain can be overloaded. Oh, I'm sorry, how the brain can't be overloaded. 
although I have spoken to a few leftists that certainly sound like they may have been just a little overloaded. <laughs> but uh, all kidding aside, uh, would you mind discussing in your own words exactly how it is that we are able to continue to challenge our mental capacities and, and how we continue to grow understanding under the right conditions? Well, the, the human brain is the most fascinating organ system in the universe. Billions and billions of neurons, hundreds of billions of interconnections. It can process more than 2 million bits of information in one second. It remembers everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever heard. And you can't overload it. If you learn one new fact every second, it would take you over 3 million years to begin to challenge the capacity. So we got plenty of reserve. But, uh, you know, if you take a, a human brain and you put it alongside an animal brain, let's say a dog, the surface topography is really quite similar. Frontal lobes, parietal lobes, occipital lobes, temporal lobes, brain stem, cerebellum, midbrain, all of these things are there. But uh, the animal, let's say a dog, has a much better developed midbrain. What does the midbrain largely do? It allows you to react, to react quickly to the environment, cat-like reflexes. People don't have those, but they do have something else. They have very big and well-developed frontal lobes, which allow you to engage in rational thought processing. So we're able to extract information from the past, integrate it with information from the present, project it into the future a year five years, 10 years, 20 years in advance, engaging very complex analytical thoughts. And that's why people don't have to just look at something and react. For instance, the color of a person's skin, as uh, some would have you believe, is such an important determinant of what happens to you in life. Uh, absolutely not true. We have the ability to engage in very complex analysis. And that's what uh, Dr. King meant when he said he belonged to the day when people would be judged not by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In other words, we don't need to act like animals. Right. Well, that kind of brings me to my next question. Uh, as you're well aware, uh, unfortunately, a majority of us are aware, one of the biggest common divides that we have going on right now is on the topic of diversity. Uh, most people that lean to the left want to define diversity as being a matter of what skin color you are, whereas most conservatives tend to lead towards better, well, greater value towards diversity of thought. How do you define diversity and What's your general feelings in regards to how America handles diversity? Well, you know, diversity is differences. Uh, we all have differences, and it's a good thing. I mean, who would want to go to the National Zoo if every animal was a Thompson's gazelle? It wouldn't be very interesting. Or to the National Aquarium if every animal was a goldfish. And who would want to get up in the morning if everybody looked exactly like you? That wouldn't be very much fun. So uh, I think it was a wonderful thing that God gave us variety. And we get to choose whether we let that be a problem or not. You know, the United States of America was able to excel 
and go from a bunch of ragtag militiamen to the pinnacle of the world in record time because we have so many creative and innovative people. And they've all contributed significantly uh, to the uh, prosperity of this country. Uh, you could take any group if you take African Americans as an example and just look around you and see things that, that were invented by them. Uh, you look at the light bulb. Uh, Thomas Edison invented it, but his right-hand man, Louis Latimer, who was a black man, came up with the filament that made it work for more than two or three days, invented the electric lamp, diagrammed the telephone for Alexander Graham Bell. Most people have never heard of Louis Latimer. Or you go past the railroad tracks and think about Andrew Beard, who invented the automatic railroad car couplers, spurred on the Industrial Revolution, or Elijah McCoy, the automatic lubrication system for locomotive engines had so many great inventions. When something new would come out, people would say, is that a McCoy? Is that the real McCoy? How many people don't know that? And, uh, you know, I could, I could talk about all kinds of inventions that were made by African-Americans, by, by Hispanic-Americans, by Irish-Americans, by, by just about every group. So our diversity is only a problem if we want it to be a problem, if we allow it to be a problem. Right. Well, uh, while you make tremendous points there, I think ultimately it's truly a matter of how we embrace one another. And when we talk about diversity, it's the diversity of backgrounds and experiences that leads to a diversity of thought that really strengthens that melding pot that the United States was designed to be. Uh, is is it a fair statement uh, that there seems to be more resistant in this uh, current time in America to the idea of melting and blending together as a single culture? Oh, absolutely. I mean, we worked for such a long time to get people to recognize that people are people. And then now we're, oh, no, no, not necessarily and uh, we're going with identity politics, and we're teaching, uh, and, and this is the most abominable thing, we're, we're teaching children that things like the color of their skin is the most important determinant of what happens to them in life. And that creates uh, resentment and fear and prejudice. And why would we be doing that? It seems like we perhaps should have learned those lessons in the past. Right. Well, you know, uh, in your own story, uh, which is a fascinating and very inspiring tale for anybody who cares to learn it, and, uh, you know, I would love for everyone in America to know it. You spent your early years growing up in Detroit. You were in a, a neighborhood in a community that was nearly entirely black. Uh, you had the black school, black churches, black neighborhoods, and then you ended up moving to Boston. You went to a school that was literally the opposite of that, which was almost entirely white. That had to be a, a transition that most folks would struggle with. How was that transition for you, and is that a, a major foundation for your current views on race relations? Uh, I'm, I'm sure it did impact uh, my views, but, you know, one of the interesting things is I just learned that people are people. And it was something that my mother always uh, emphasized. 
and not to get caught up in, in the racial issues because there were a lot of them. And uh, there were people who were always saying, you know, you're just wasting your time. You'll never become a doctor. The system is stacked against you. Uh, my mother would never hear of, uh, of that kind of talk and of excuse making. And uh, I think it made a big difference. And her friends used to just criticize her like crazy. You can't make those boys stay in the house reading books. They'll grow up and they'll hate you. I would overhear them and I'd say, Mother, you know they're right, but we had to do it anyway. <laughs> and, but, but she had to laugh, laugh because uh, one son became a brain surgeon and the other became a rocket scientist. So uh, even growing up in a dire poverty in a horrible uh, neighborhood. Yeah. Well, you know, you have made the comment yourself that education is the great equalizer. And there's a couple more questions I would like to get to involving education. But I think that it was, in fact, those values that your mother appreciated that really allowed you guys to be as successful as you were. Uh, was there any outside influences, though, that uh, uh, helped you to click in that positive direction? Or did you feel like there were things trying to pull you away from that uh, track towards success? Well, of course, there were things pulling you away. But, yes, there were outside influences. You know, I don't know of very many people who've been successful who can't point to a teacher or a counselor or other responsible adult were very beneficial in their lives and you know I had a, a number of people I think of my band teacher uh, Mr. Ducks in high school you know I won a scholarship to interlock and your listeners who are musical knows how significant that would be and um, he said Benny don't accept it even though it would have been a huge feather in his cap to have a student go to interlock uh, he said, you're going to be a great doctor, and I don't want you to get distracted by music. He was uh, much more concerned about my future than about his own. And, uh, you know, there were teachers like Mrs. Mrs. Miller, started out as Miss Schoenberger, who absolutely refused to let me get involved with the gangs and with the wrong groups of people. You know, at the threat of my life, so I had to stay away from them. And yeah, you know, it was uh, you know it was it was good people scattered throughout who made a, a real big difference. And I always emphasize to people that you can be that positive influence. You don't have to be a negative influence. We have so many who always come up with reasons why things can't be done, why somebody is a victim. How about using some of that brain power to figure out how people can be successful. It'll make all the difference in the world. Yeah. Um, a big, a big part of your book, a rather large section of the new book talks about things like the 1619 project and critical race theory. Now we know this has been a major debate across the entire country as of late, especially as more and more parents have been waking up to see that the racial essentialism that's the basis of critical race theory is being included in curriculum, and because they narrow it and don't teach uh, CRT proper uh, as the version that you see in uh, collegiate law schools, we, we see this 
as being a point of denial on the part of certain educators. But there seems to be this huge push to to continue this idea that the color of your skin is so predominant towards the outcomes, regardless of how much you apply yourself. And, of course, it creates uh, a a lot of dissension and dissatisfaction uh, and resentment. When you t- and you know it exists, you know a friend of mine was telling me about his granddaughter who came home crying. Said, "Grandpa, am I evil because I'm white?" Obviously, they're hearing this in in school. Uh, and then so many of the minority kids are being told that the system is extremely unfair. It's inherently unfair. It's made to keep you down. Well, if you can convince somebody that they're a victim, they are a victim. And uh, there's no good place where that leads. And a lot of the 16, 19 projections, you know, are built upon the concept of slavery and how evil our country is because we had slavery. But they don't tell the whole story. The story about how virtually every civilization from the beginning of time has had to deal with slavery. And in fact, there are more slaves in the world today than there have ever been. in in human history. And you look at things like human trafficking, the biggest consumer of it is right here, the United States of America. So we have people who are sex slaves and we are not doing anything about it except going back 200 years and pointing to the slavery that occurred at that time. We can do something about it right now, today. And we can start doing things about closing our border for those people who are trafficking. And, uh, you know, we don't, we don't have to dredge up something from the past. And this is not to say that we shouldn't talk about what happened in the past. We should. And our history should be inclusive, but it needs to be put in context. And if there's anything unique about us and slavery, it's the fact that we were willing to fight a civil war and lose a large portion of our population to get rid of it. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, Another section of uh, Created Equal, you basically go on uh, your history lesson uh, where you cover all this issue. Uh, You talk about Columbus, you talk about St. Augustine, you talk about 1619, uh, the Civil War, you talk about the Emancipation Proclamation, Juneteenth, uh, you, you go from segregation to the Civil Rights Movement, you cover a lot of other topics. Now, I've been, yeah, because, I'm sorry, I, I was just going to say no, that, uh, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, because it, it's so essential that people understand that our history gives us our identity, and our identity gives us our beliefs. And we become very easily swayed when we don't have those things. Right. Now, I've been making the case for some time now that doing things like tearing down statues, removing monuments from public spaces, that this is a wrong move because it denies us the opportunity to learn from our history, to confront those mistakes that we have made in the past. And I think more importantly than that, uh, it also denies us the opportunity to see how come, how close 
we are to achieving uh, those ultimate goals of the founding principles. It keeps us from seeing how far we've come together in working towards achieving those founding principles. Uh, That's exactly right. All right. All right. I'm going to try to hit on just one more thing before we start to wrap it up. You've been very generous with your time this evening, sir, and I greatly appreciate it. Um, I, I found this interesting. Uh, you uh, you talk about in uh, the book this similarity between the current council culture that we see today and Jim Crow racism. Now, I have to admit that that's not a connection that I had really made before. But after uh, reading that part of the book, uh, the case that you make is hard to deny. Uh, would you like yeah, to? Ex- oh, absolutely. Yeah. Would you mind expanding on that just a little bit? Yeah, I was uh, explaining that to a liberal reporter today <laughs> who, who was having a hard time. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, both of those things—you know, Jim Crow racism and cancel culture—are made to establish one group as that with the superior position, the superior thoughts, and another group as the disenfranchised group uh, who should be left as powerless as necessary uh, in order for the dominant group to maintain power. And uh, they both do exactly that. So uh, the cancel culture is antithetical to the principles of liberty and justice for all, and and to the concept of freedom of speech and freedom of thought. And we should run from it, you know, like the plague, because all you have to do is look historically at other nations who start with, with you know, relatively simple restrictions and rapidly move to the point of domination of people. All right, Dr. Carson, again, thank you so very much for uh, spending part of your uh, evening with me today. Uh, I want to thank you very much for your service to humanity as a physician, your willingness to to venture into the world of politics, and the service that you gave to the nation uh, as one of those people that took on a role of Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, which is uh, much underappreciated and uh, certainly continues to make you a target uh, no matter what position you are holding. So thank you so much for all of that. And before we go, please let everybody know where they can find the book Created Equal, The Painful Past, Confusing Present, and Hopeful Future of Race in America. And please feel free to share anything else you'd like to, websites, uh, if you're on social media, if, if you want to share handles, whatever you'd like to do, uh, right now is your chance, sir. Well, it comes out uh, on May the 17th, but you can pre-order it anywhere books are sold, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Uh, it's everywhere. And uh, I would just uh, encourage people to also go to the American Cornerstone Institute.org. Go to that uh, website and look at all the multitudinous programs that we have that are made to empower the populace with knowledge, with information. And also our Little Patriots program at littlepatriotslearning.com, an educational program, K-5, through which gives a complete history 
of America, warts and all, but in the proper perspective so that our children come away with the understanding of the greatness of our nation, a nation that has made mistakes and can learn from it and how they can be a part of empowering that nation in the future. Well, I can't say anything better to follow that up, uh, except, of course, uh, Godspeed to you, and thank you for all your uh, hard work and dedication. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. that is uh, Dr. Ben Carson. All right, and that was my conversation from uh, just uh, the other night, uh, one where I was nearly afraid to uh, to to promote heavily beforehand because it always seems like something happens on the days when I least expect them or on the days that I'm most excited to have a particular guest. But, uh, hey, from the lunacy of the left to the serenity and sane thought of one of our uh, foremost voices in uh, the conservative movement right now, uh, everybody be sure to pick up a copy of Created Equal. And that's going to have to be it for uh, today. Once again, I want to thank everyone for listening. I greatly appreciate you being here. And remember, don't take my word for it. Definitely, definitely don't take their word for it. Be prepared to put in some effort. And most importantly, use your brain if you really want to tap into the truth. This is Tim Tapp. Let's go, Brandon. Hey. Let's go,
is using both hands. Mm-hmm.